Amen. Good to see you today. God bless you. Jill, get back to your seat. <laughs> I need somewhere to stay this afternoon. Is anybody? <laughs> Amen. Jesus here he's, uh, makes this statement. The Pharisees are um, fussing, griping, complaining because he is sitting down and eating with uh, tax collectors that the Jews hated and sinners. Jesus hung out with sinners a lot. Uh, this is actually the scene where he is calling Matthew, who was the tax collector, and Matthew's life was so radically changed that he wrote a book that made it into the Bible called the Book of Matthew, one of the four Gospels. And this is that setting where Jesus encounters him in his home. Matthew, according to some of the other Gospels, made a big meal for him. And the Pharisees were there, and they were not happy at all. Uh, verse 11 says, When the Pharisees saw it, that they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. He says, but go and learn what this means, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Uh, you may be seated. A uh, couple of things we need to, to note here. This is Jesus referring that the need here is for a physician um, because the people are sick. And, who's, and he's not talking about physical sickness here. He, it just says that they're griping because he's with sinners. And Jesus, out of his own mouth, identifies and sees sin in a way that the Pharisees never saw it. Um, Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The word repentance here, and I know I say this often here, but, but most of the church in general across broad brushstroke don't even know what the word means but the word uh, repent is the Greek word metanoia and it means to radically change the way you think so most of the church thinks repentance is you run to the altar drape over it confess your sins tell God how sorry you are and you've repented uh, you're not saved by repenting you're saved by believing um uh, but repentance is important because if you don't repent, change the way you think, and, and primarily it's the way you think about God, it's the way you think about how salvation occurs, uh, you, you will not trust in that one who has come to save, to heal. And so I, that's why I entitled this The Great Physician. And I want you to see that Jesus saw sin uh, not as a law-breaking moral problem, uh, only, but he saw it as a fatal disease that needs healing. Uh, I mentioned this probably a month ago, but you, you can't punish uh, a disease out of someone, right? Uh, you can't spank a flu out of a child. You can't jail someone and incarcerate them until their cancer goes away. How many knows that don't work? 
And so what we need is not a punishing judge, but what we need is a great physician who can heal us of this fatal disease called sin. And we see that analogy, we see that, that view of sin throughout the scripture. If you look for it, if you, in Numbers uh, chapter 21, I won't read the verses there, but that, this is where the children of Israel are traveling through the wilderness. Moses is leading them. And now fiery, deadly serpents are biting the people. And if they're bitten by this, these serpents, then they die. It's fatal. And so, uh, and, and what does a serpent do? Well, what does they do? They inject toxins or poison into the, the venom, into the, into the body. Um, and so Moses is told by God to make a bronze serpent and to place that serpent on a pole and lift it up. And he said all those that would look to that, to that bronze serpent on that pole would be healed. How many knows that it worked? And Moses did what God said, and it worked. And, and, and that story there in Numbers 21 is a story, and that thing that occurred prefigures Jesus Christ and what would happen to him on the cross. And we know that for a fact because in John chapter 3, in verse 14, Jesus says so out of his own mouth. And so Jesus is talking here, and of course in John 3, he, he's talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus who came to him at night uh, seeking answers about the kingdom of God and about uh, who Jesus was. Uh, Joe, uh, uh, Nicodemus said, we know you're a teacher that's from God because nobody can do what you're doing if, unless they are from God. And he did recognize that, but he did come at night for fear of the other Pharisees seeing him. And so Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus. And verse 14 of John 3, he says, And it is, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he said, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus is identifying himself in that that occurred in Numbers 21. That event, that situation prefigured Jesus Christ and the cross that God had anticipated uh, what was coming. And, and he goes on in verse 15, and it says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then this probably one of the most, if not the most famous verse of all in the New Testament, for sure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Don't ever forget the next verse. For God did not send... I want you to understand something. God sent his son into the world. But God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that, through, uh, but that the world through him might be saved. God come to save the world, not to condemn it. Now, I want to read a couple of verses on down, and then we'll come back to them in a little bit. But he says, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And he says this is what that condemnation looks like. He said that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He said everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light. This is that his deeds may be clearly seen and that they may... Uh, have been done in God. Now, now th this is a type 
uh, in typology of us in, in looking to Jesus. In other words, we're looking just like they did in Numbers 21. They looked to that bronze serpent on the pole, and all that looked to it and, and obeyed what Moses told them, they were healed. And they were healed of that, of that fatal serpent bite. And, 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 and so this is the same thing with us as, as we look to Jesus and we trust him to heal us of the fatal disease called sin. Now, now this, this goes all the way back into the garden, the Garden of Eden. And, and we don't even have to get no further than the third chapter of the Bible. And we already see a prophetic declaration. And, and what God said there in Genesis 3.15 is that he said the, the seed of the woman. In other words, that is going to come from the seed of a woman from her womb. He said, he shall bruise your head. He's talking to the serpent. He, God says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God said, I'm going to crush this serpent. I'm going to crush it. I'm going to, I'm going to deal with it. And God is already, in the third chapter of Genesis, he's already anticipating this thing. And he likens it and ties it back to this, this serpent. Now, now, this symbol of a, of a serpent on a pole is a very, very powerful image. And uh, I want to put that up. I wore that symbol uh, for 20 years as a paramedic. There it is. I wore it every day for 20 years when I was a paramedic. It was on our uniform. And it goes all the way back to the Bible. It goes all the way back to Numbers 21. Now, if you look at the worldly deal in Wikipedia, they'll try to tell you it goes back to some Greek mythology. Numbers 21 predates Greek mythology. They just don't want to acknowledge it, that this symbol is what Moses did. He put a brazen serpent on a pole, and he lifted that up, and all that looked upon that is healed. Uh, we wore this on our uniform, and it's called the Star of Life. Not the Star of Death, but it's the Star of Life. And if you look to that, now who is the, who is the serpent on the pole? Why, why isn't it a lamb? I thought Jesus is the lamb of God. Why didn't Moses make a lamb and put it on the pole? But he made a serpent. Because him who knew no sin would become sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Is that right? And, and so... so uh, this, this, I want you to see sin today, and I want you to think about sin as a snake bite, as a toxin that, that enters into your system. And let me tell you something, a toxin or venom that goes inside a person, it, it's not something external, it's internal. It's systemic. It goes throughout the body. Uh, it's internal. That's why sin and Jesus, that's why he referred to himself as the physician that come to heal the people of the sickness, this fatal disease called sin. And, and the sin, the way Jesus described it, the way he looked at it, the way he dealt with it. Show me one person that Jesus came upon that was sinning or that was brought to him that was sinning that he condemned and punished. He didn't, when the woman in John 8 was caught in the very act of adultery and thrown at his feet and they quoted the law to him that she should be stoned to death. Jesus didn't punish her because you can't beat adultery out of somebody. You can't stone it out of them. You can't incarcerate it out of them. Jesus, you know the story, what he did. He said, you know, woman, where... You know, he, him just don't have any sin. Let him throw the first stone and everybody left. Because they were all bitten by the same serpent. 
every one of them, and they knew it, and they knew it was internal, and they dropped their rocks and went home. And then Jesus says to the woman, woman, where are your condemners? Where are your condemners? She says, she finally lifts her head, looks around, shocked to see none. She said, I have none, my Lord. And, of course, he said those famous words that the church gets backwards. He says, neither do I condemn thee. Now he gave her the power to go and sin no more. The church says, go and sin no more, and we won't condemn you. But Jesus says, there's no condemnation. Now that's the power. It's called grace. Go live out of that, and don't do this again because it hurts you. And it hurts people that love you. So snake bite is a is a is an internal problem. It's not sin. It's not misbehavior that needs punishing. Uh, it's a fatal disease that needs healing. Just for, so that nobody sends me an email that I delete. I'm not saying sin is not a transgression against the law of God. It is. But, I want to, but I'm telling you, it is far deeper problem than breaking a rule. It is far deeper problem than misbehavior in a person. That's why the church's approach has been, well, stop doing that. Well, here's all the do nots. Do not do this. Do not do that. Do, you can, I mean, that, the rule book never makes you not do it. In fact, Paul said, the only reason that I coveted is that there was a commandment given to me, thou shalt not covet. And he said the commandment empowered sin in me and made me covet. You want to see a modern example of that? Uh, bake cookies right before supper, put them in the cookie jar and tell your grandkids don't eat these cookies. Walk out the room. See, they wouldn't have had problem about thinking about cookies until you told them thou shalt not eat cookies. But when you said don't eat cookies, all they can think about now is cookies. And you leave that room, and when you come back, somebody's going to have cookie crumbs around their mouth. Because it was, that's what Paul said the law does. It empowers that sin in us. That's what empowers it and gives it power. So sin is not just a transgression, but, but it's something far more internal and deeper than that. And, and that's why if, if you treat sin and you think about sin as a moral law-breaking situation, then you're only dealing with the periphery, the surface. And, and the problem is not external, but it's internal. And you can address a person's behavior. You can pick out something they've done, and you can holler at that, and you can scream at that, and you can try to discipline yourself not to do that, but it will not work. It will not work. Good luck with that. Let me know how that works out for you. You'll never be delivered of any kind of addiction or any kind of problem until you put your faith in Christ and realize that you are now the righteousness of God, and then you will live out of that truth. See, there is, there is the truth about you. There, you, there are, there are you, the ways of truth, and, and, and then there's your ways. In other words, there's the truth about you, and then there's the way about you. Now, all we can see is the way about you. In other words, we can only see what you do, how you behave, how you, how you react, how, how you conduct yourself, how you, how you live your life. But that's not necessarily, and most of the time, it is not the truth about you. The truth about you is different than the way about you, and that's why there is incongruence in your life. 
You, you need that harmony of that truth so that you can be real and be what God intended you to be. When the Bible says, be ye holy, even as I'm holy, God's not telling you to try to live holy. He's telling you to be what I made you. Because holiness is not something you achieve. Holiness is something you receive. And it is a gift of God, according to Ephesians chapter 4. And you get true righteousness and true holiness when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible, a lot of the church don't even know that. They're trying to achieve it. They're trying to live well enough. They're trying to live good. That's what the Pharisees were doing. It's idolatry. It's trying to save yourself by good deeds, good behavior, by benevolent acts. You can never do that. You go to funerals. Preachers get up and they talk about how good the person was and what a nice person was and how kind they were. And, and that's fine to say that as long as you don't place that in the context that that's why they're going to heaven. Because good people don't go to heaven. Thank you, Ken. Man, I love you, buddy. Good people don't go to heaven. You don't go to heaven because you're good. This is not a moral grid between good and bad. This is not where bad people, you know, don't go to heaven and good people do. One good person will go to heaven. Only perfect people will go to heaven. Perfect people. If you're not perfect, you ain't going. And I know I say that, and, but you just need to let that sink in, especially if that's the first time you're hearing it, because you think I just lied or something. But religion's taught you that. That's what the Bible says. That perfect. God has always said that the condition for being with me in my kingdom is perfection. In Jesus' first sermon he preached in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, he said, be ye perfect. Did he say it or not? He said, be ye perfect, and then he defined perfection, even as your heavenly Father. He said, be holy, just like your heavenly Father. The Bible said that God has perfected forever the saints of God in Hebrews. It says that God is the Father who, who perfects the spirits of men. Where is that perfection at? Is it in your outward the ways? No. We, we know looking at each other, watching each other, there's not one in this room that behaves constantly, consistently and without flaw, perfect. We all admit that, right? If you don't, then you need help. I could be closer to perfect if I didn't have to drive. <laughs> That's my weakness. Anyway, people don't drive intelligently. <laughs> Makes me have bad thoughts about them. Make me smoke my truck tires. I'm talking about them and their mama and their grandma. No. <laughs> None of us behave perfect, but I want you to understand that when you're you, when you're uh, born, you put your faith in Jesus, the, the gift of righteousness is yours. And it's not that I will be one day. The Bible says we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Whose righteousness did God gift you? Paul in Romans over and over called it the gift of righteousness. He gave you his righteousness. How righteous is Jesus? <laughs> He's pretty righteous. That's good. He's pretty righteous. So... That's been gifted to you, therefore, in your spirit, 
you're just as righteous molecule for molecule as Jesus is. You're just as holy as Jesus. When you get to heaven, you're not going to be better. I grew up with a theology thought that once I died, I was going to. Re- That's when I was going to be righteous. Once I died, you know, once I crossed over Chile Jordan, once I was over there, over yonder, by and by, after a while. Notice all them songs. We I grew up with them songs. It, it always transposed every victory and everything into good times that way. It, it said that it was powerful in back here when Jesus was here. You know, should have lived then. Ah, oh, tough cookies for you, but it's going to be, won't it be wonderful over there? Having no burden to bear. And just song after song. And so in my mind as a kid growing up in that culture, I was programmed to think that not Jesus was not my Savior, but death was my Savior. We should have started worshiping death. That death was going to save me, not Jesus. Jesus done come, done his best, and I'm still a mess. But now what I'm looking for is death going to make me better. Death is going to make me righteous. Death is going to make me holy. I'm telling you, that's the way church thinks right now. It's not what the Bible says. Jesus said, now my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The Bible says, now cast all your burdens upon me, all your cares upon me, because I care for you. The Bible says that when you look at this, when you, when you, when you approach sin with the wrong thought of what it is, and I've told you this over and over, that sin primarily in the New Testament, if, if, and I hope this matters to you, I mean, preachers like me just studied a bachelor's degree in systematic theology, I mean, man, we, get, we had to study all this stuff, but, but that's what makes you understand the power of words. But sin is a, is a noun. A noun is a thing. It's a person, place, or thing. Only one time in the whole book of Romans is the word translated sin a verb. What does the church think? The church thinks sin is nothing but a verb. They think sin is something you do. I stole a piece of candy. I sinned. No, sin caused you to live in under an orphan spirit and think you're not going to be provided for. Therefore, you took what you, you know, thought that God wouldn't provide for you. An orphan don't think that anything that they have is theirs. You put an orphan at a table with kids that are around, and I know this for a fact because I've, I've got friends that's adopted orphans, and you leave the room and you put a lot of extra food on the table, you go look in that orphan's bedroom under his bed and you'll find that extra food. Because that orphan is used to not having enough and they're going to hide it and squirrel it away so they'll, ha- they'll have it. Jesus said, when I, it's your advantage that I go away because when I go away, I will not leave you as orphans. I will, not, I will not leave you like that, but I'll give you the Holy Spirit that will not only be with you, but it shall be in you. And the Holy Spirit, in case you don't know, is God. He's not a bird. He's not a dove. He's God. And that's what the Bible says. So you can't look at sin and deal with it like it's a peripheral, uh, external problem. John 3, 16, when, when, when Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, God sent his son. We see that in verse 17. And he uses this word, or the word is translated into English, the word perish there. Now, 
Let me tell you what John 3, 16, it said, God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now I want to tell you what the verse don't say. It does not say that God was so angry with the world that he killed his only begotten son because somebody had to pay. It, it don't say that. It don't even hint that. And I've, I've, I've spent, I've blogged about it, I've written about it, I've preached about it, I've put it in my book. God did not kill his son. God is not the author of the cross. God didn't create the cross. Men created the cross. Uh, God sent his son. He did not kill his son. God did not turn his back on his son on the cross. We killed his son. And when we killed his son, what did God do? He forgave us. When we killed his son, what did God do? He raised him from the dead. He resurrected him uh, from the dead. When we killed his son, what did God do? The Bible says he reconciled us to himself, not counting our sins against us anymore. That's clear Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God's not imputing. He, he reconciled. What does that mean? God balanced the books on the sin issue. God wiped sin out of everybody's sin account. Up to that point, everybody's sin account was full. You had a debt you could not pay. But God wiped out your debt, called it paid in full. You have no sin account. You don't. Well, what, if I what about sins I hadn't committed yet? God don't live in time. God took care of it on the cross. And if you don't believe in future forgiveness, then we all lost in hell. Let's just all leave because we can't got no hope because unless Jesus comes back and gets on the cross a second time. Because when Jesus crawled on the cross 2,000 years ago, how many of you were alive at that time? Okay, I didn't think so. So if he dealt with your sins, it had to be future sin. See how silly the arguments that the church does and, and stuff. And so God, God has wiped out. The, when Jesus came, the, John the Baptist pointed and said, look at that lamb. That's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of only the Christians that will constantly confess them one by one. Is that what it says? It says that there's the Lamb of God right there that's taking away the sin noun of the whole world. Another place John said in the New Testament, he is not, he is the propitiation, which means the sacrifice that settled it. He is the propitiation, he, John said, not for our sins, like Christians, believers, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. And when you grasp the reality of that, that means that every human on this planet right now, are forgiven by God. That means that God has no reason to be angry at anyone. God is not condemning them. God is not judging them. God is not angry with them. God is not punishing them. God's not trying to get their attention. He don't do that. He loves them. He's drawing them with cords of love, the Bible says. It's the goodness of God that draws men to repent. Not, not beating a fever out of a baby. And if everybody could realize, but this is something that the church don't even know, and that's supposed to be the voice to, to proclaim the truth, the good news, the gospel, but most of the church in America don't know this truth. Therefore, if they don't know it, they don't believe it, therefore they don't preach it. 
They tell people that they have to come and confess their sins, and then they believe that forgiveness is something that God can do. But we know the Bible teaches that forgiveness is something that God has done. God's, had, God's done it. God didn't, you say, well, I didn't ask God. It don't matter whether you ask. I know you think you're big and bad, but God don't have to have your permission to forgive you. He already handled it. He forgave you before you got here. He, he, you're forgiven. See, that's why it's called grace, and that's why it's called good news. And then what's the deal then? If they're forgive, Forgiveness does not automatically mean that you've got faith in Jesus. In other words, everybody's forgiven. That doesn't mean everybody is, you know, quote, saved in the sense that they've put their faith. But, but they've been forgiven. And, and what, that, what our responsibility is, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is to God says that I... God was in Christ reconciling the sin of the world to himself, not imputing men's trespasses against them. And therefore now it says he has given unto each of us the ministry of reconciliation. And he says that we are now to beseech them as if it was God himself saying, I beseech you, be reconciled to God. Because the implication is because he has already reconciled himself to you. God has already forgave you of all the transgressions and all the sin, and he has wiped the account clean. All that is left was what you need now. It is not that you needed forgiveness because that's been done. When, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God didn't say, oh, in the day that you sin, you're going to need me to forgive you. God said, in the day that you sin, you're going to die, and you're going to need life. And Jesus said, I've come that they might have what? Life and have it more abundantly. See, Listen, almost that word translated perish in John 3.16, often, many times in the New Testament, the same Greek word, uh, and it is translated uh, lost. So anytime you see the word lost most in the New Testament, it's the same word, it's the Greek word, Apollo me. Apollo me, and it, and it means lost, and it does mean perishing, and, and they try to, you know, depending on the context of the, of the verse. But what, I, this is what I want you to get. John 3.16 is not saying that God so loved the world, and if you don't believe him, he's going to throw you into hell and burn you forever. It's not what it says. I'm just telling you, it doesn't say that. It, it doesn't say that at all. Many translations don't even use the word perish because Americans go crazy with that word and make up what it means. But it's, it's more properly translated, lost in many translations translated. Lost Phillips translation, for example, said, for God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that, so that everyone who believes in him shall not be lost, but should have eternal life. Uh, you remember the parables in Luke where he, Jesus talks about the lost sheep, Remember? The lost coin. It's all, every time that word's lost, it's the Greek word Apollo me. Same word. Jesus could have said the perishing sheep. The perishing coin. And then he goes on to the third parable, which is the, lost, the two lost sons. One son is lost in a far distant land with riotous living. The other son is lost in religion back at home. But they're both totally lost. And when I say lost, Jesus came, said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, you can't say something was lost unless it belonged to you. You can't say, I lost my wallet. If I say, I lost my wallet, that means it was my wallet in the beginning. But now it's lost. 
We've all been lost. Some of you may be lost now. And you can be a Christian. I know Christians that get lost. But that don't mean you're not God's kid. When, when my oldest son, uh, I don't know how old he was. How old was Austin in Fontana Dam Village? Huh? How much? Anyway, little kid. While Jill and Jeannie debate the age. Okay. Try to get some help from the poop. Oh, no, I said, did I say Austin? Who did I say? Justin ain't lost. He's back here on the back. <laughs> okay, true story. He's four years old. We go to a family reunion at Fontana Village near Fontana Dam in North Carolina. It's full of cabins and stuff, and it's just a big, you know, all the uh, Jill's family came together for her granddad's uh, birthday uh, and a reunion. It, you know, all the families have different cabins and so forth, and there's a lot, there's a lot, it was a big family, a lot of people. And Austin is four, and we look around, and he's gone. At that moment, he's lost, and he's lost in a huge facility, complex, center, houses, cabins, woods, bears. <laughs> I will never forget the trauma I felt when my son was lost. I, when he was lost, I, I, I didn't know, I had no clue where he was. And to say I'm freaking out is a mild understatement. So Jill goes her way hunting him, and I just literally began to run and physically ran from cabin to cabin Beating, hollering his name the whole time and beating on doors. And, and if people would come and I would say, I've lost my little son, Can you, you seen him? And they'd go, no. And a lot of those people I was banging on their cabins didn't have nothing to do with the Miller and Booker reunion, you know. But I didn't care. I was desperate to find my kid. And, and, and not to over, you know, state it or exaggerate. I don't know. I mean, it was, good. it was a good hour probably before we found him or an over an hour. It felt like a day. And, and I am freaking out because every moment I'm thinking, I may never see my kid again. I don't know where he's at. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know who took him. I don't, I don't know. But that feeling of a dad and mom that has lost their child. Now, while he's lost, the point I'm making with this, I hope you get it, is that he's still my son. He has always been my son. He will forever be my son. But right now, he is lost and he don't know he's lost. That's what's so scary. He's only four. He, he, he don't know he's lost. He, 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 he just, he's just living. And so over an hour, hour and a half, whatever it was, uh, I think, didn't, he, didn't the, the little girl just walked him back up? So there was an older girl, you know, 9, 10 years old, 12 years old. Anyway, she had walked him off somewhere, you know, and uh, I'm like, son, you know. And then when you see him, you know, and like in those days, you know, you just, you, we just ran and grabbed him, hugged him, and man, we just so, I mean, oh, man. And then, and then that, that adrenaline that's been pulsing through your system all washes in, and then your knees go weak, and, and you're done for the day, man. You just want to go somewhere and lay down. 
uh, it's that fight or flight, all that, all those, uh, that adrenaline hits your system. And, uh, man, and, and you can believe I didn't let that kid out my side. I mean, he was within three feet of my perimeter till we got back, till we come home. I wasn't losing him again. Now, I'm nowhere near as good as dad as papa. And papa loves his kids far more than I could ever describe to you. And every one of you is his kids. And you have always been his kids. And the Bible says that, and I'm not making that up. And, and, and so, you, but you've been lost. And, and we, we, we have all been bitten. See, it's not like in the Numbers 21, like, okay, um, you, you know, you better look to this brazen serpent. If you don't look to it, then the snake's going to bite you, and then you're going to die and go to hell. See, that's, that's a threat. That's a threat. God's done, God doesn't issue threats. He issues promises. See, I was raised on a gospel that said, all right, come in, I'm going to tell you something. And then they put a pistol to your head. And then they say, it's a pistol and it's got hell wrote on it. And they put the pistol to your head and said, now, are you going to put your faith and trust in Jesus? Because if you don't, I'm going to bleed brains out. But if you do, I'll move the pistol down, then you can go to hell and be happy. Choose wisely. A person that you threaten eternal damnation and hellfire over, and you throw that into the equation on their decision to trust in their Savior, that is not faith. If I put a pistol to your head and tell you to do something, you're not doing it in faith, in my goodness. You're doing it out of fear in my badness. You think I'm going to bust a cap, and you're going to be gone. So you'll do whatever. You've been trained. P pistol, hands go up. You ain't doing that because you're praising the Lord. You're doing that because you're scared. You, you understand? That's the gospel, that a, a threat. But the gospel of grace is a non-threat gospel because that's the good news. That there with a pistol to your head, uh, this is your alternative. That's, that's not, there ain't no good news in that. And a person that chooses, well, let's see, the climate in heaven, the temperature there versus the temperature there. I mean, I'll choose this. I mean, who wouldn't? If you got any sense? I mean, who wouldn't? See how quiet it gets when I bring that subject up? The reason I hate that, because it turns God into a sadistic, eternal punisher that is so angry that he's just going to punish you forever. Because you said no to his son. And it also makes him that he could not deal with sin like he promised he would do. He couldn't eradicate it. He couldn't even deal with sinners, so he had to imprison them. And he's so ticked off, he's just going to torture them. And he's going to, you know, give them a supernatural body so they can feel the pain forever and never burn up. And then somewhere out in the cosmos of the universe... While we all in heaven, you know, you know, eating marshmallows, wearing bed sheets with angel wings. No, that's true. Uh, then over somewhere is this prison, this lake of fire. And that's where all the bad people are over there, you know, and they're being tortured. And, uh, but I thought God said he was going, they would be, sin would be no more. He'd wipe every tear from their eye. There would be no more pain, no more sorrow. None of that would ever exist again. That's what it says. That's what it says in Revelation. 
That's what it says. That's what it says. But I guess that lies because that ain't true. Because over here somewhere we got this, you know, we got this quarantine situation going on. Yeah, y'all go ahead and believe what y'all want to believe. But if that helps you serve him, y'all go on. But I know my daddy too good. God ain't never done anything that don't have redemptive purpose. If you can't see redemption in it, I don't care what you think the Bible says. It ain't, it ain't God. It ain't God. I'm just going to leave that alone. That wasn't in the notes. I probably should have left that out. But I feel better. <laughs> when Moses built the brazen serpent, before he built it, serpents were already killing the people. When Jesus came, Jesus came to a situation that was already unfolding. He came to people that were already bitten. They were already fatal. They were already dying. He comes to the lost. And again, don't think of lost as just being people that ain't Christians. I've seen Christians be Christians, but yet they get lost. They lose their way. Uh... It's not like if you don't look to Jesus, then the serpent's going to bite you. We're, we're all bitten. And, and that's what the Bible teaches. That's why John 3, 18, he says, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned when? Already. It's an ongoing situation. Already condemned. Why is he condemned? Because he's not believing in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's, this is not a threat. This is, this is God saying that, that we are already condemned. What, what, are we, what are we condemned to? This is not some future event. He said, I came because you're already condemned. And what are, what are we condemned? What are humans condemned to? They're condemned to lostness. They're condemned to lostness. And what does lostness look like? It, it's, it's darkness. It's darkness. And the Bible talks about that over and over, that when a person doesn't know. See, what happens is, like the, the, uh, the Apostle Paul, you know, he said in Galatians, he said, when it, when it pleased the Lord who separated me from my mother's womb to reveal Christ in me. Now, I can't rewrite the Bible. That's what it says. Paul said, I was confused. I was in darkness. I didn't even know Christ was in me. I, I didn't know. I'm a four-year-old. I'm lost, man. I'm just running around thinking I'm having a good time, but I'm being led astray. I'm being taken away from the, from the peace and the joy of my, of my father, my, my family. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm lost. I'm trying to find. The Bible talks about that, that, that men grope for the Lord. How, however, he's not far from none of them. First uh, John chapter 1 verse 5 says, John starts out, but he said, the light shines in the what? In the darkness. But the darkness does not comprehend it. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, John says, this is the message that we have heard from him. Now we declare it to you, that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. There's no evil in God, not a bit. Not a little bit. Not, there's no evil in God. In, in 1 John 2 and 8, two, chapter 2 verse 8 says again, he says, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him. He, listen to this now. Listen to his words. He said, this is true in him, Jesus, and it's also true in you. Because the darkness, whether you believe it or not, is passing away. And the true light is already shining. 
Do you know that darkness that's in you is passing away? One reason because you know what it says? It says the entrance of thy word brings what? Light. Jesus said in one of the gospels, he says, now listen to me. Don't let the light in you become dark. That's what he said. Jesus said, don't let the light that is in you become dark. Because he said, if the light in you becomes dark, then how great is your darkness? 1 John 2 and 11, he just keeps this theme. He, he said, but anybody who hates his brother. Now, this ain't talking about your blood brother. This ain't talking about your kin. This is talking about another human. They're all your brothers and sisters. They don't know it. But he who hates his brother is what? In darkness. And he walks in darkness. And he does not know where he is going. Because the darkness is what has blinded his eyes. These people you see that hate each other and want to kill each other and, and they hate their brothers and, and, the, and this religion hates this religion and these people hate these people and these people hate these people. There, there, there's darkness that causes that. In John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus says to them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The light of life, I love that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17 says this. Paul writes and says, This I say, therefore, and I testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, Darkened, there's that word again, being alienated. They're, they're alienated from the life of God, not because God's angry with them, not because God's mad at them, not because God has separated himself from them, but because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. God said they're ignorant that they're my kids. They were like the Apostle Paul, who due to the darkness of religion that had clouded his mind, was killing Christians. Apostle Paul was the first James Bond. He had a license to kill. Y'all think about that while I take a drink. He did. He had papers, the Bible said, on the Damascus Road. He had license, written license to kill Christians. He, he was in the dark. And that's why Paul writes in Galatians, says, he says, when it pleased God, who's the one that actually separated me from my mother's womb? To reveal Christ in me. He said, I didn't even know Christ was in me the whole time. I was in the dark. Paul told us to pray like this. He said, he said because, listen to what he said, the God of this age has blinded the minds of people with darkness so they cannot see. It's always, that's what the whole theme of the New Testament is. That this whole thing of this awakening to Jesus is, is, a, is coming out of the darkness. The enemy loves to keep people in the dark. He loves to keep them, you know, God said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What Knowledge of what? Knowledge of him. They have these vain, Paul said, imaginations about God that are not true. And, 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 and Satan wants to keep them, the evil one wants to keep them in the dark. So that, you know, just keep them in the dark so they won't know. That's why you don't want the gospel preached. You don't want the true gospel, the undiluted Gospel of grace preached that, that, that lets them know. See, you know, when, when Jesus starts John, 
three year, and, he's, and this Nicodemus, this Pharisee, comes to him at night. You know, that's where Jesus has the conversation. Nowhere else in the Bible did Jesus uh, uh, tell a person that they had to be born again. Right, right after this, we go over to chapter 4 in John, and he meets a Samaritan woman at the well. He don't tell her she's got to be born again. He don't even mention it. He tells her, all you need to do, baby girls, drink, and you'll stop being thirsty. That's all he told her. He said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me, I'd give you something to drink, and you'd never thirst again. She said, give me that drink. <laughs> she thought it was something tangible coming out of that well that she wouldn't have to come and physically draw. He said, no, it's of the Spirit. That's what Nicodemus, he told Nicodemus, he said, that you know, in the Greek, it's literally born, when it says born again, it's born from above. Now, some of you, anyway, I'm just going to say this to you. The Bible says from one blood, God has made every man that lives. And it says in that, that verse that you are, the, and they are all his offspring. All of them. All of them are his. It says his offspring. That makes you God's kid. <clears throat> when you, when the lights come on, so to speak, when you awaken to the truth of the goodness of God that leads you to change the way you think about him and you repent, the way you have thought, and you awaken to the reality that, like Paul did, that Christ is in you, and he is the hope of glory. When they would baptize people in the first century church, they literally called it the breaking of the water. Now, when John is talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, Jesus told him he got to be born again. He, he immediately, his brain cannot comprehend. The light appears in the darkness, but the darkness cannot comprehend it. And so he goes natural where Jesus is speaking spiritual. And Jesus marveled and said, you are a teacher in Israel and you don't know this stuff? He said, well, how can a man be going to go back in his mother's womb and be born a second time? Jesus said, what is spirit, spirit, and what's flesh is flesh. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you just don't get it, man. He said, the wind blows, you don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it's going, but that's the way the spirit is. He said that unless you're born from above, you, you, can't, you can't see the kingdom of God. And, 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 and unless you're born of the water and of the Spirit, you can't enter and enjoy the kingdom. You saw this building called Grace Point, but then you had once you saw it, but you could not have entered into it unless you first saw it. And the way you entered into it is through the door. And Jesus is the door to the kingdom. He is the door to the Father. And, and so they start talking about blood and water. What's that remind you of? Birth. I was a paramedic, like I said, 20 years. Uh, I had the unfortunate, most of the time, privilege <laughs> of birthing babies in the field. I did enjoy that. I would like, please, lady, hang on till we get to the hospital, please, in Jesus' name. I bind you, baby, in Jesus' name, and stay in there. <laughs> I remember one morning I had a doctor. It was a baby, wasn't but seven. Just the lady had just six. six uh, anyway, she just turned seven months. Anyway, we had some issues, and so he sent us to Macon because they had a neonate trauma center in at Macon, and and uh, he he put her in the ambulance. And I remember that that uh, OBGYN doctor looked at us. It was early in the morning. He said, I'm going to tell you, she, don't worry about it. Now, she, she ain't going to have that kid. They're going to have plenty of time to get her there. What a liar he was. 
as I got into I-75 where it goes 475, I, I was sitting on this, or my partner was up front. He pulled down this over because I said, she's having the baby. And so she had the baby. You know what came with the baby? Blood and water. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and they stuck the sword in, what came out? Blood and water. It's a sign of life, awakening. Now, just because blood and water appeared, that doesn't mean the baby hadn't been alive, does it? Did the baby just start living when it was delivered or was it alive before it got delivered? Are y'all following me? So when we baptize somebody, we're actually breaking the waters. If you can receive this, I got to quit. But it's like God has been pregnant with you and you didn't even know it, but you was in him. That's why when Jesus went to the cross, the Bible said we was crucified with him. And when Jesus was buried, we was buried with him, Paul said. And when Jesus was resurrected, we was resurrected with him. Why, you've always been in him. And what happened is you didn't know you was in him, but when he baptized you, the waters broke. It's like God's pregnant with you. Waters broke out, came blood and water here. You awakened to the reality of Jesus in you, that he has always desired you. God has never been, I'm just going to wait and see. And all that time that you was in lost darkness, not knowing what you're doing or where you're going or understanding life or nothing about it, and you've been deceived by this world and this world system and the evil one who betrays that, but you're still God's kid. And like the parable of the lost sheep, the Bible said that good shepherd will look for that sheep until he finds it. He, wills, he is relentless. He will not give up. He will not give up. It says when the, lost, the lady lost the coin, it said she looks to it and looks for it until she finds it. It don't say she looked a while and finally give up. It don't say that they look for the sheep and finally say, well, that sheep should have you knew better. I tried to tell it. The good shepherd goes and leaves the 99 safe in the fold, and he goes and looks for that one that's lost, and he keeps looking until he finds it. And he is relentless, and he will find your loved one. The, that one that you love right now, that you're thinking about right now, that's out there in darkness, lost, don't know what's going on, don't know what they're doing. I want to tell you, you've got a Messiah, who his name is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. He is looking for them. He is pursuing them. He's going after them, and he will not give up on them. We give up on people. The system gives up on people. Family gives up on people. But Jesus will not give up on them because they're his kid. <laughs> Jesus, like, I got this. That's mine. I'm going to find them. I'm going to awaken them. It's taken them. Uh, I mean, it's taken them some time. They, but God's got a tailor-made situation. He's reaching for them, speaking to them, calling for them. I'm telling you, he's doing it. This has brought me such peace. I mean, I see people, and if I look at where they're behaving and doing something, I, mean, I get scared. I go, oh, what? then I, I realize God says, listen here. Jesus said, he said in John 17, he said, Father, I have made your name known, and I will make you known. Jesus said, I take personal responsibility for letting them know about you, Papa.
and he will not relent. He will not give up, and he's going to search for them until he finds them. He's going to do it. Man, I think about my own lostness and what was going on in my life when God come to me. I got born again when I was 12, and my theology was so messed up. I thought I was totally, you know, gone again, lost. If I thought if I died, I'm, you know, hell-bound. And I lived with that torment. I didn't even know God. That God I was introduced to back when I was 12, I'm an atheist now. I don't believe in him because he does not exist. I wish somebody had told me a truth. It would have saved me a lot of hell in my life. But I'm glad I finally got introduced by Jesus to his Father, who is love. He doesn't have it. He is it. There is no shadow of darkness in him, no shadow of turning. There's nothing evil in him at all. He is good all the time. All the time he is good. He is totally good. Took me a long time. I don't want it to take you 50 years to get to believe that like it did me. I used to preach that he was good and still deep down did not know it and did not believe it. Because circumstances that were not good entered my life and I became angry and bitter against the one who I preached for and preached about. And the startling reality hit me like a ton of bricks. And I told God, I have got something very wrong about you. And I need your help. And I never really just asked for just a simple help to help me, Papa. And it was a slow process. And that started really drastically for me about 15 years ago. And since then, I turned the corner. I've not arrived at some pinnacle of the temple, but I have learned in these past 15 years that God was far greater, far better than I ever imagined. It has brought me a peace that is indescribable. I do not fear. I, I, read, I, I have the peace of God. Oh, I still have moments that I'll, I'll get distracted and I'll get my focus on something else. And then I have to remember, Papa, you got this. You got this. I get worried about my kids sometimes, about my grandkids. And then I, I have to say, Papa, you got this. You are relentless. You will not relent. You will pursue them forever. So, if you lost, think about when you was lost. Just think back when you were, do you remember when you were lost? Remember in your lostness? Do you remember like me when I, I was still a Christian, didn't know it, and I was 19 and I was so lost. But, you know, God was going all through that village, hitting them doors. <laughs> You know, you know where God found me? You know where I was hiding there in my lostness? When God really just encountered me in a powerful way, that wasn't his only. I was in a disco in Pepper, called Pepper's Disco in Tifton, Georgia. I was 19. I was high. I thought God, I thought God couldn't come past that door. And God ain't finna come in here with all this going on. God hangs out at the church building. He don't come in here. And I ain't got to worry about no Christian being in here because if they is in here, they ain't no Christian, so I ain't studying them either. 
And I was in there doing my thing, doing what I did in trying to hide in my lostness. And God encountered me there. I, it was so unexpected. And he said, son, is this what you want? God's, the, the Holy Spirit has so much respect for you as a person that you are allowed to do evil to other people, and he will not. I mean, God, God loves, he don't want the evil. Well, God, if God's so good, then why is all this? Because you don't want, you're, you're free. You, that freedom that you have, that liberty. If God restrained that, then, then you don't have freedom. You don't understand how much the Holy Spirit respects your power of decision and your free will choices, even if it brings him pain. If God wanted a robot, he could have made one. God don't want robots. He wants kids, sons and daughters, family, who with their own free will and volition see him as he is and love him because they have first been loved by him. That's what he wants. And God began to turn the lights on in my life. And I recognized him in a way that I've never seen before. Pure goodness. Pure goodness. So no matter how, where you are lost, I pray you're not, but if you are, it's okay. Because God's right there. Wherever you are, he's there. Wherever you are. You can't go anywhere that he's not. God's in you. You're in him. That's what the Bible says. You just don't know it. You just hadn't woke up to the reality that you're God's kid and you always have been. And God has been pursuing you, lovingly drawing you, and he will never relent. Do you believe that? So if you're lost in darkness, come to the light, and that's Jesus. Come to him. Just come to him. Just like you are. Just like you are, come to him. Just say, Lord, I, I come to you, the light of the world. I come to you because I have no light of my own. You are my light. Take away this blindness and this darkness, this addiction. You've already paid the price for my sin. Thank you. I believe that. I'm forgiven. And let your life flood my heart and let me live the way you intended me to live. And let my ways match my truth of my spirit in you. And let me shake off all this old other stuff that's not of you. And enjoy the life you've given me. Can somebody say amen? Stand up, please. God bless you guys. I love you. Appreciate y'all. Anything good come out of this? Amen. I praise the Lord for it. How many besides me is enjoying this weather? I'm telling you. I just look up to God and I say, man, you did good today, Papa. <laughs> you did good. You did really good. You know, I've said that and just felt this. I, I mean, I literally do that. I'm not making itself up. I'll be like riding down the road and I'm like, man, I just, it's spontaneous. I just say, ooh, Papa, you did good today. And not that he didn't do good yesterday, but anyway, it's just what I say. I don't know how many times I've said that. And then I just like that, you know, that them Holy Ghost goosebumps, we call them. Just, just wave over me. And then I just smile. <laughs> and I get him to, and then I, man, I just, and that's why I wanted to like kiss him in the mouth. You know what I'm saying? I just, 
because I know how real he is and how present he is and how in me he is and how in him I am. And, and I'm riding down the road to go see a Medicare person, and I just, all I said was, Papa, you did good today. And he, he just, he just, like, he went, blowed on me. I don't know what he did, but it gave me goosebumps. And it wasn't from the air conditioning because I didn't have it on. You know what I'm saying? It's just God. And that just, I just, I just love serving the God that is real and that is present in all of my stuff, whether it be good or bad. He's right there with me, and he's in me, and he's for me always. Amen? I'm going to be standing down here. If you want to talk to me today, you know, shake my hand. You know, I'm not, it's not like my prayers are only ones that work. But, but we're here for you, and we do believe in praying for people, and, and, uh, and so we'll do that. My elders are always watching, and they'll come help me if, you know, if I get more than I can deal with. But, but we love you and, and uh, want you to come back. Amen. Bring somebody with you. Go and enjoy your day. God bless you.